Welcome back everyone. We've got a very special episode for you today uh, and we have a guest. I would like to welcome to the podcast Professor Brendan Cropley. Welcome Brendan. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to, to chat about reflective practice today. Wonderful. Um, so obviously the, the first thing that we need to know about you and that our listeners will be eager to know, um, as you said, we're going to be talking about reflection, but if you could tell us a little bit about your background in education and research and specifically how you came to explore the theory and practice of reflection. Okay, um, so my first foray into education, um, I was fortunate enough to take some hourly paid lecturer hours on a, a co- um, Ustradman at college, which is now part of Colleague Ecomoyth. And I always say to my colleagues in HE that actually it's the best education that I ever had as an academic because um, you're working with a very different type of individual as a learner and you you find out a lot about yourself in in those um, situations more so than what you'd give yourself credit for in terms of knowledge of the subject area etc that you think is going to get you through as a as a educator but actually you appreciate that your knowledge of the subject area is is very um, minor compared to understanding the individuals that you're working with so I spent some time working in FE to start off with and and then I was fortunate enough to <clears throat> be offered the opportunity to do a PhD in the area of professional development within sports psychology, which is the area that I was training in professionally at the time. And uh, part of this, part of the uh, research was about really understanding how professionals develop the knowledge that they need in order to operate effectively. So the PhD really married up well with my professional training as a sports psychologist, but also what I was experiencing, as I've just mentioned, in in FE as an educator, as a a very neophyte and very naive educator. And um, so I started to explore the role of reflective practice as a process of experiential learning, as a process of really helping us to understand how we join different types of knowledge, such as content of the subject area, knowledge of individuals, knowledge of uh, ethics, knowledge of context, etc. We join all of that that knowledge together to give us an understanding of how we operate and how we make decisions and how we perform as as educators. And so, whilst my uh, research into reflective practice was really uh, started in the area of sport, it soon translated into all of the other areas that. I was um, operating in at that time as an educator, as a as a um, sports person, as a trainee sports psychologist, and um, yeah, it really became a formal part not only of what I was researching but also what I was doing. So I'm thinking now about my own kind of development as a teacher myself. Now you've been talking about being a you know, very, yeah, new, me too. very naive educator. <laughs> I'm thinking back to my PGC in the heady days of 2004 and everybody was talking about being a reflective practitioner. But actually when I think back, the, the kind of, it's no exaggeration to say that the, the reflection after a lesson consisted of a template with a massive box that just basically said, so how did it go then? <laughs> Whereas now we're using research informed kind of really structured reflective models. Things have moved on really fast particularly in the last couple of years so can you give us an insight into kind of why we've done that what does the research tell us about the impact on teachers of doing this kind of really structured formalized reflection yeah not a problem i think that there's just before getting to the benefits there's something really interesting here in that i think the way in which in uh, reflective practice is introduced during our training whether that be during a pgce or whether it be 
um, training to be a sport and exercise scientist or sports psychologist or however it's introduced in any profession, it's introduced as a process of reviewing a session. <clears throat> and for me, it kind of it kind of stunts potentially our growth as reflective practitioners because we see it purely as that approach, i.e. that I will conduct a lesson, I'll come away from the lesson and I'll think about what was good and what was bad about it. And in that sense, our reflections never really get beyond that notion of like a performance evaluation almost. You know, we really think about how we engaged our learners, whether we met the learning outcomes that were associated with this, with the uh, lesson itself and how we might do those things better moving forwards. So I, I do think we need to think about reflective practice slightly differently, even though it is introduced in these formal settings in, in those particular ways. And the reason that I say that, just going back to your question about benefits, is that the benefits are really associated with developing self-awareness, developing the coping mechanisms that are required in order to meet the demands that you're faced with in the role that you're fulfilling. They're linked to being creative, they're linked to being transformative in terms of transforming your, your values, your beliefs, your ability to live those values and beliefs in your behaviours as an educator. And though to get those benefits, to get those outcomes, you, we have to move beyond this, this notion, this perception of reflective practice as purely a process of reviewing our, our lessons or those uh, interactions that we have uh, during our uh, education or during our professional practice. We have to see it as, as something that's, that's a little bit more associated with experiential learning, a little bit more associated with a transformational learning that will really help us to be better at what we do and what what I mean by better is that we start to understand our practice better we start to understand ourselves better and we start to understand how we might be more effective within our roles rather than just simply more competent within our roles and I'm curious as to how you um, <clears throat> sort of introduce a novice or someone who's got very little experience with self-reflection from a place where they have no idea how to do it effectively to a position where it almost becomes intrinsic um, and you don't necessarily even need to write it down formally. It's it's actually part of the way that you think and, and exist. Yes, it, yeah. So... Um it's quite interesting. You mentioned the word reflective practitioner previously, and I think we kind of get bogged down again with this notion of the use of models, etc. And we think that if we pick a model up and utilize that model or framework to write some notes down about a particular event that we're reflecting on, is that that gives us the the right to call ourselves the reflective a reflective practitioner? But I do believe that reflective be, uh, sorry, being a reflective practitioner is much more than that. It, it requires us to exhibit uh, a set of values or a set of attitudes. And uh, John Dewey talked about this some time ago when you know, the notion of experiential learning was being formulated into this concept of reflective practice or the process of reflective practice was being used to help facilitate experiential learning. And those attitudes are associated with being open-minded so being open-minded to the notion that there might be better ways of doing things, open-minded to the fact that there are always opportunities for personal development and growth. The second one is about wholeheartedness. So really being wholeheartedly um, interested in a subject area, being wholeheartedly interested in personal and professional growth, and being wholeheartedly interested in asking yourself, how can you be better on a daily basis because by and large we're asking our learners to be better on a daily basis so for me there's an accountability there 
as a professional educator, as a um, a professional in any uh, industry, to really think about the way in which we uh, facilitate that personal and professional growth. And the third one is about responsibility, um, about being responsible enough to engage in a process that helps us to learn from our experiences and really buying into that process in a way that allows it to become a formal part of what we do, not just something that's an add-on to what we do as an educator. And so I think if we're able to start to develop those attitudes, those values and those those beliefs, reflective practice can become more of an implicit thing that we do rather than this really conscious process of picking up a framework, sitting down and, and answering some questions, essentially. However, that, that, that process and that journey, is, it is a developmental one. And yeah, cer- certainly for the novice, the person who hasn't reflected before, I wouldn't necessarily advocate just giving them a model like Gibbs's model or John's model of reflective practice or Driscoll's uh, model of reflective practice and saying, go away and have a go. I would really try to engage those individuals in a shared process to start off with where an in, or two individuals engage in a conversation around practice and one individual operates in the role of the interviewer, if you like, and asks questions and the other person acts as in the role of reflective practitioner and tries to unpick the answers to those questions by uh, making sense of their own thoughts and their own their own feelings. So that that reflective conversation with another person can be really powerful at the start of a person's journey to becoming a reflective practitioner and perhaps something that we need to facilitate more regularly. It's really interesting um, this notion of the kind of the private aspects of reflection but also the kind of public aspects of it and and how we're kind of interdependent as well when we're reflecting. Our student teachers they reflect they do reflect formally but they also have many informal reflective conversations with their mentors in school so I'm just interested about this the the difference between how we might reflect uh, in a public sphere and what somebody who's kind of listening to the reflector can do to encourage them to reflect more deeply and and how that's different to when we're reflecting as an individual on our own more privately. Yes, there there are a few points there to pick up on. I think um, we, we have to be careful about this notion of reflective practice within a public forum. Yeah, yes, you can uh, as a... Um, a format for reflective practice. You could write a blog, for example, and all, all of a sudden you are really engaging a wider public or a wider audience. But we do we do have to be careful because some some reflections will be highly well should be highly personal and uh, potentially highly emotional and evocative. And really, if we're going to learn about ourselves and our practice, we might really need to ask ourselves some questions that deal with some things that we might not want anybody else to really know about. So we have to be. Um, mindful of the ethical issues potentially associated with sharing our reflections on a uh, on a wider scale reflecting with another person who facilitates that process the the reason that it's that it's potentially quite powerful is that that individual is more likely to ask the person who is reflecting those difficult questions than the individual is likely to ask themselves because of the discomfort and the vulnerability that those questions bring and so I think we need to be really careful again with this shared process in that you're very uh, you, you develop an appropriate relationship for that shared reflection to occur 
in the first place where the relationship is built on trust, respect, confidentiality, etc. So that the person who's reflecting is able to answer those potentially difficult questions in an honest and, and open manner. The issue that we have with reflecting in a private uh, setting, particularly when we're quite neophyte within our practice, is that we are limited by our own knowledge. So, you know, if you're thinking about the way in which you might build relationships with learners better, um, you might not really have the answers to that question because you feel as though you're already doing what you think is right. And so we probably need to add new knowledge or new understanding before we can really start to learn from our experiences in a way that transforms or improves our practice. And so, yeah, there, there will always be pros and cons to different approaches to reflection, but I think we need to make sure that we're aware of, of the fact that there are different approaches to reflection and really we need to select an approach that suits the purpose of the reflection and the stage of learning that we are at as individuals. And so we engage in a variety of different practices that support our reflection uh, our reflective activities uh, and the the other thing that i'd mentioned sorry in, in and around this is that we do have a particular issue about using reflective practice as a formal part of education systems because if if we are not careful the power um, relationships are associated with learner and tutor really might stunt an individual's engagement in reflective practice because they en end up engaging in a process that is uh, that might be considered socially desirable, i.e. that a learner starts to reflect on things or in a way that um, might satisfy the needs of a particular course or a particular assessment or a particular uh, um, tutor. And that can really sort of diminish the quality of the reflection, but also diminish buy-in to the reflective process because it's seen as a as a way of exhibiting power over the learner and, and the person who's, who's developing. So. We have some challenges, I think, in education around this um, as reflective practice becomes more embedded within academic qualifications and professional qualifications. But, um, yeah, it's certainly something that we, uh, we should be addressing. It's interesting that you, you point at some notes of caution there in relation to these, these formal research-informed reflective models. Now, we do use these uh, on the PGCE as kind of we were co-designers of this kind of aspect of the program and, and we've been really careful when putting these in to try to try and make it a personal choice you know to give them a choice of models that they're, they're not assessed in terms of you know you must have eight of them by the end of the program or anything like that you know <laughs> so we've, we've tried our, our very best to take that kind of tick boxy aspect out of it but as you say that um, someone who's new to them needs a bit of guidance uh, and a little bit of help in in accessing them we have a choice of four on our program and they've got certain features in common and, and certain features that are different. I mean, as, as a sort of a, a more experienced reflector speaking to perhaps one of our student teachers who's completely new to it, can you kind of point up um, when, they, when they see these things for the first time, where are the kind of powerful features in there? Where, where are the bits that kind of really do the business uh, in terms of the reflective models? What, what, do they, what do they need to know when they embark on filling one of these in? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to be. Um, I don't want. I, if I've come across as overly negative about frameworks, then, I, then <laughs> no. I apologise because I use a framework. I, I consistently use a framework, not one framework. I use many frameworks uh, to guide my reflective practices, and the, and the reason is that reflective practice is instigated through questioning, and those frameworks essentially are built around a process of asking us questions 
through which we can either have a conversation with ourselves, i.e. if we're doing it on our own, or a conversation with other people if we're, we're engaging in that shared approach. And so frameworks and the questions that are, are um, inherent within them are fantastic for driving good reflective practice. The quality of the reflection that you engage in, the quality of the reflective practice will rest in the quality of the questions that you ask yourself. And defining the quality of questions will be linked to the purpose that you're engaging in the reflection for. I'll try and give some examples to, to bring this to life in a second. So when I mentioned reflective practice being something that's purposeful, your reflection should be about something specifically and for something specifically. And once you've made some decisions around those factors, you can start to decide what, in, what process you might engage with that will allow you to engage in a reflective process that, that could be deemed as, as good, as high quality, as effective. So in terms of it being purposeful about something, I mean that instead of thinking about really reflecting on a minute one to minute 60 of a class or a, you know a session that you might be delivering why not focus in on something that really stands out from that lesson that you think would if you were able to address it really give you the opportunity to improve your practice so instead of engaging in that evaluative process of what was good and bad really start to think about what is what opportunities have i got to make a better future for myself as, a, as an educator Asking those sorts of questions that take you away from that that really evaluative process, that judgment-making process to really understanding a way of building on your strengths and building on the opportunities that you've got to move forwards. Those are the sorts of questions that really give you the big bang for your book. And in, inevitably, they are linked to a lot of the models and frameworks that are out there. But I think we kind of get bogged down more in that evaluative process. So, for instance, in, in a session, I, I'll just give an example, um, a lesson that I, was, I delivered last night, for instance, to uh, our level six uh, cohort. Uh, what I could reflect on, the it's a two hour session. If I sat down and tried to reflect on all two hours of the session, it would take me an absolute age and I probably would lose interest and I probably wouldn't get anything out of the reflection that would give me anything that would help me to move forwards. However, if I start to reflect on one specific thing, how I was able to interact with the socially distanced class, I can start to really hone in on and make sense of my ability to communicate, my ability to interact, my ability to listen to, the, to what the uh, learners are saying during the tasks, and my ability to be able to re respond to learners in a way that satisfies their needs and expectations. All of a sudden, I'm focusing on what might be quite a narrow area but quite a deep area and I'm really able to start to dig a little deeper below the surface of, of learning from that experience to help to generate the information that will enable me to transform my practice should I need to moving forwards. And so going back to the question, I appreciate I've been around the houses a little bit here. Um, no, that's really helpful, those concrete examples. Yeah, all, all models and all frameworks are useful. Do not, uh, my advice is do not get um, tied down to one particular framework. Let the purpose of the reflection drive the uh, approach itself and then select a framework with the questions that, will, that you need in order to really unpick the experience in line with the purpose for it. So again, just going back to my example of, of last night, if I think about this notion of interacting in this socially distant space, I might not have the knowledge 
myself to be able to answer some questions if I picked up a particular framework to engage in a process of reflective practice that would that could be deemed as effective. And so in this sense, in order to fulfill the purpose of my reflection, I might need to go and reflect with somebody else so that I can engage in more of a conversation, get them to ask some deeper questions of me and my, my values, my approach, etc., that might really help me to understand these things more clearly. So the purpose will drive the process. But even in that shared process, even in that shared approach that where I might go and have a conversation with somebody, I'd still use a model. I would either pick up Driscoll's model of what, so what, and now what, and have it on the screen in front of us so we can facilitate the conversation around those three different areas. Or I'd have a printout in the front of my uh, diary where I keep most of my reflective notes. I've got a, uh, a John's model of reflective practice printed out and put in there. I don't look at it very often, but I have it as almost like a, a little um, safety net just in case I kind of forget about the questions I should be asking myself or... I draw a blank with with the direction that I need to take the reflection in. And so I have it in there as a, as a bit of a prompt and a guide. But the more and more you use these models, the more and more you get used to the types of questions you need to ask yourself to move your practice forward, to, to make better sense of things for yourself. And so the less you probably need to look at them directly. That's all really helpful um, and interesting. And I, I just wanted to come back to the point you made about novices who kind of don't know what they don't know. They're limited by their lack of knowledge and experience. And therefore, when they are reflecting on their own and they might not be able to immediately get somebody else to kind of engage in that that sort of more probing role, then I just wondered if literature played any part in this or if reading can be that kind of new perspective and that that new critical lens to help them to make sense of what's going on yeah i think that's it that's an absolutely valuable and uh, brilliant point definitely yes um you can access knowledge in so many different ways and yeah i i would always argue that it's probably the easiest way to to get new knowledge is to go and ask somebody else but reading looking at the available evidence really making sense of things from different sources so that you can start to draw some of your own conclusions that are, are probably a little bit less biased by experience is a great way of developing new knowledge that will really help to facilitate your reflective practices more. And certainly in my early reflective practices, I would add references in. I would almost write in an academic style. It was just the style that I was used to. And so I'd, I suppose I'd access the literature training to be a sports psychologist if i was delivering a goal setting intervention i might go and look at some of the goal setting literature afterwards to to kind of try and answer some of the dilemmas or problems that i'd I'd experienced during practice to make sense of how or why i might have done things in in a certain way or how things might get get improved moving forwards so um yeah the literature is is absolutely valuable and there's so much out there in terms of the professional practice of educators that really helps us not only to understand some of the theoretical content of uh, pedagogy, but also helps us to understand the lived experience of of individuals and the way in which they've uh, dealt with certain situations or overcome certain demands. I'm going to ask a slightly pokier question here, and it kind of chimes with the points that you made about this this power relationship if we are reflecting with somebody who is also our assessor um, or has a stake or an influence on our our performance. Um, But I'm interested, 
in your sort of from your research and from your experience is there potentially a correlation between reflection or the reflective practitioner who you know displays those attitudes that you talked about at the start and performance are they potentially better teachers if they are engaging in reflection regularly Okay, so my subjective answer is yes. So please get out and make sure you engage in reflective practice in a critical and transformative way because I, I do feel it's important. Um, my objective answer is is that, um, that the word correlation would indicate um, some sort of quantitative evidence and we generally haven't got a great deal of interventions in the literature across all industries, sport, uh, education, nursing, which, which are probably the uh, the, the uh, fields that have developed the reflective practice literature the most. We haven't probably got those those sorts of intervention studies that kind of indicate whether people are engaged in reflection and the level of reflective practice that they're engaged in and the impact then on some sort of performance indicators. However, generally through uh, the more uh, qualitative literature, there is significant evidence to suggest that those people who engage in reflective practice at a more critical level are able to engage in a experiential learning process that is transformative to improve self-awareness, uh, improve creativity, improve problem solving, improve decision making, improve being able to cope demands and all of these factors are linked to better performance within the, the fields that the research has been conducting it conducted in and that certainly includes uh, education we have started to develop some more quantitative interventions that have looked more closely at relationships between engagement in reflective practice uh, levels of reflective practice and specific performance indicators Uh, for example uh, one of my phd students gareth picknell has conducted some work in the um, uae military looking at whether improved reflective practice skills or skills in reflective practice uh, improve dietitians ability to communicate with their patients the reason that he looked at communication is because the uh, communication is widely recognized across the professional governing bodies for dietitians as a key um, attribute for those practitioners and what he found is is that those practitioners who are able to reflect at a more critical level demonstrated higher Uh, levels of communication skill than those who weren't reflecting at all or those who were reflecting but at a more descriptive evaluative level if you like so you know you you can argue about the quality of some of this evidence given the measures that we have but it would seem to link into the qualitative research that we already have Uh, recently I've conducted a study with sports coaches that looks at whether Engagement in critical reflective practice helps those coaches to develop hardiness, which is a a characteristic associated with dispositional resilience. So we're looking at whether reflective practice has the ability to really develop some of the characteristics that allow our traits to evolve or or to emerge. And what we found is is that those people who, again, were engaged in more critical levels of reflection were able to demonstrate higher levels of hardiness, which helps individuals to see demands as challenges and and allows them to demonstrate uh, growth from adversity, which are massively important attributes for educators. So it would seem that higher levels, critical levels of reflective practice do have a significant impact on an individual's ability to perform within their roles. And really, 
the evidence that I've talked about there has built on the actual emergence of reflective practice in the first place, which was all about the work of Donald Schoen, who kind of suggested that actually reflective practice allowed us to develop the, the types of knowing and action that we need in order to be able to do our jobs properly. And so, yeah, I would argue that there is, there is significant evidence out there to suggest that critical reflective practice should not only uh, be something that we do as part of our education and training process, but it should be a formal part of who we are and what we do as professional practitioners in order to be accountable to those we're working with and working for. And like I said, I think there's enough evidence out there to kind of support and and back that up. So just a quick question, I suppose, slanted at the other half of our listenership. We've got student teachers, you know, they're they're on a a PGCE programme or an undergrad programme, which is designed to kind of pull them out of that really busy school environment and give them the the space and time to reflect but in thinking about our our serving teacher listenership who are teaching you know 20 to 25 hours a week they're probably doing fine they've probably got the kind of craft knowledge and the experience to do absolutely fine but maybe they're sold now by your your kind of very persuasive argument there in favor of reflection but they've either had very little experience of it or they've just fallen out of the habit given that they are in that very very busy environment where it's very hard to kind of stop and and take stock and perhaps as you say they've got the bias of experience um potentially as a bit of a pitfall if they could do one thing that just sets them on the road to doing all of those things what would it be yeah i wouldn't be worried about doing reflective practice uh so so that's just um sort of almost critiqued everything i've just said um I think we get bogged down with the notion that, oh, I need to reflect on everything that I do. Um, I I have different views on this, and I'm sure many other people have different views on this as well. But if you're you're delivering for 20 to 25 hours a week, there's going to be almost... It's going to be almost impossible to you for you to systematically reflect on everything that you do in a way that leads to the outcomes that I've just mentioned. And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't informally reflect on everything that we do, i.e. that we mull over things in our minds and, and we go over the little changes that we might make in between sessions to improve what we're doing. I think that's absolutely fine. Whether you could classify that as uh, reflective practice or not is perhaps another debate. But they are the processes that we as professionals will inevitably go through in order to try and manage manage ourselves maintain our practice and improve our practice as we go from minute to minute and hour to hour and i think that's absolutely fine i think in order to engage in reflective practice in a way that allows those uh, benefits to emerge you know that development of self-awareness development of creativity development of those personal characteristics that allow us to manage the demands i think what we need to do is be able to try somewhere within the week to give ourselves some space to take a step back and almost just really focus in on one thing that stood out for us during that week that can uh, really help us to make sense of our practice ourselves the context of our practice etc and so the way in which i i kind of talk about this is that take a friday for example 
And if you're able to fit in at some point uh, during that day, an hour where you're able to think back during the week about one thing that's really stood out, that what that one personal critical incident for you or critical thing for you, and it could be absolutely anything. It could be an interaction that you've had with a learner. It could be an interaction that you've had with another member of staff, a colleague. It could be something that you thought about. It could be something that you've seen or read in the news. It could be something that's really resonated with you, either from a positive or a negative perspective. And then utilize that as your catalyst for reflection. So you're making your reflective practice really purposeful. Again, instead of reflecting on a, on a whole lesson or a whole series of lessons, you're focusing in on that one particular thing. And then you're able to utilize those frameworks or models to really critically analyze whatever it is that you've highlighted as that most important thing. You'll really start to get some of those transformative learning outcomes out of that process that uh, we've mentioned that I don't think that you'll be able to get to by really reflecting on the hoof, if you like, across the the busy life that, that we lead. And I know I still understand that that's very difficult, particularly with the demands that are placed on teachers in the current climate. But the, the, this is the type of environment that we need to be uh, campaigning for and promoting within schools, within educational establishments, because I, I kind of liken it to an artist standing at an easel that artist will constantly step back from the easel to make sense of what's going on um, on the canvas to understand what things need to change, what things need to be tweaked, what big changes need to be made. Uh, made sorry, And then the artist will come back to the uh, canvas and start to make those changes. The artist wouldn't be able to make those changes as effectively or as efficiently if they constantly stood at the canvas. And the analogy for me is absolutely perfect for teaching if you're constantly at the coalface and you're trying to make little tweaks and and little amendments as you go along the likelihood is you're just going to be engaging in a process of trial and error i'll keep trying things until i get the right solution which probably isn't isn't doing ourselves or our learners uh, justice or it's not doing justice to that that process whereas if you're able to periodically step back and really make sense of some of the big things you're going to be able to make some changes that that will be quite profound within practice and the final thing i'll say on this when i mean changes i don't mean that you need to change your practice all of the time those changes just might be a a better understanding of how you continue to engage in really good teaching practice so reflective practice is not just about improving what we do but it's about making more consistent those good things that we do and creating opportunities to, to utilize those good things more often Brendan, it's been a privilege to be able to kind of investigate this area that you've got a vast uh, knowledge and experience base to draw upon and, and, you know, and also the research that you've done and continue to do in this field. So thank you for for that generosity and, and for sharing. You're not exempt from these short slots. We've set you some homework. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, to give us some some more insights, but on our lighter slots now, if you will. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe starting out with um, giving us an insight into how a professor uh, looks after his own well-being. <laughs> okay, so there are a number of things that I try and do. I try to have some hobbies that are totally separated from what I do on a day-to-day basis. And one thing that I've really thrown myself into is learning a musical instrument. So Tom will be uh, quite interested in this. I, uh, as an individual, am completely tone deaf, but I'm, I'm not really that bothered about it. 
So I've learned to play the guitar. I pull my guitar out and I sing at the top of my voice whatever song that sort of comes to mind and I try and learn new songs. And that for me is a great release. It's not brilliant for my wife who has to, who's working at home at the minute and has to listen to me doing it. But um, for me, it's it's just a great way. I really enjoy music. It's 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 got, got great meaning uh, to me. And for me, sort of engaging the process of playing music and listening to music is a great way of sort of taking me away from you know, the demands that you face on a day-to-day basis. And it really gives me an enormous sense of well-being. And I suppose a part of that, it's linked to personal growth in that, you know, I'm taking the time out to do something for myself. I'm taking the time out to learn something new. And, you know, it, it gives me a great sense of satisfaction if I learn to play a new song or, you know, I learn something new on the guitar or actually when I'm singing in my own mind, I don't sound too bad sometimes. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I think you know, trying to find something that allows, you, that allows you to engage in personal growth that allows you to do something that you really, really love. I mean, I really love my work, absolutely. Um, but I think sometimes you do need a break from that. And uh, yeah, music is a great way out for me. I thoroughly approve of that. And it is a subject <laughs> music where people are made to feel that perhaps, you know, if they're not super duper elite at it, they shouldn't be doing it. And I'm sure you're way better at it than you're, you're telling us there. So keep keep doing that, I would say. Uh, have you oh, got... No, thanks. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got <laughs> a bit. Sorry, I've got to talk about this yet. Yeah. The guitar playing isn't too bad, but the singing is absolutely <laughs> horrific. And uh, yeah, may, maybe once uh, um, we're able to socialise a little bit more, there, I might introduce you to that song. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. I think we should, uh, we should put that out on the podcast. No, you should go for it, yeah. definitely. I, I worked with um, a senior manager in my school when I worked in a school who was well into his 60s i think and still bore a kind of bitterness at being told to mouth the words rather than sing them in his primary school oh. choir so it really kind of <laughs> made me realize very early on as a teacher that we've got to be so careful not to kind of uh, become elitist about that so you go for that you come and record whenever you like thank you very much. go out on our christmas episode <laughs> yeah magnificent <laughs> Do you have anything uh, interesting in any sort of medium on any kind of subject that you'd like to share with our listeners um, do I have anything? I'm not really an interesting person. No, uh, I have. Um, I, I was just looking at some of the questions that you'd ask. One of the books that I've read recently um, it was just before lockdown. Actually, I'd had this book for a long, long time and just not got round to reading it, and um, managed to pick it up. And I finished it in just over a day. It's called "This Is Going to Hurt" by Adam McKay. Um, Essentially, the book is our um, extracts from his reflective diary that he kept whilst he was a junior doctor working uh, in the NHS. And the book is probably one of the first books really to invoke every single emotion in me that I displayed visibly. I, uh, it, made, it choked me up at the end. It made me laugh out loud. My wife gave me some very strange looks when I was reading this uh, uh, when, we were, when we were away. Um, it's just an amazing insight into an individual's experiences and thoughts and it, it resonated with me on, on two factors really. My, my research into reflective practice because obviously this is taken out of a personal kind of reflective diary of his but also the emotional and physical demands that, that are placed on these individuals uh, working really at the, the forefront of, um, of one of the most critical services that we have in the UK. And I don't think it's really that that too dissimilar. Obviously, consequences are a little bit different, uh, but it's not that dissimilar to uh, people working in education. And 
it certainly gave me a newfound respect for those individuals. And I would thoroughly recommend the book to anybody uh, who's interested in going to work in in profession in, in some sort of profession. Uh, because I don't think we really talk about the wider demands that individuals have to face and experience and, and manage and cope with in order to be able to be successful within their profession. Uh, we don't talk about those things enough, and certainly this will give you an insight. But yeah, be prepared for an emotional uh, roller coaster. <laughs> Great recommendation. I've got a, a very short side story on that. My grandfather was given this book by his granddaughter, my cousin, um, who at the time was a junior doctor, and uh, he read it and uh, was obviously quite horrified at some <laughs> some moments, and immediately had to ring her afterwards uh, to check was she okay. So you, uh, oh, you it's definitely a good recommendation. <laughs> okay, so finally, um, something to try, Brendan. Have you got something that um, our student teacher? could try out yeah um, I'm going to link it back to what we talked about and I sort of mentioned it towards the end of our conversation I think when we talk about performance and we talk about being involved in professional practice I think generally the way in which we see improving that comes from a, a process of identifying things that aren't working and putting them right if you're constantly thinking about those things that you're not good at the things that went wrong the things that you know should be improved it kind of leads to this real deficit-based thinking and this negative approach to improvement and performance in in my uh, view and so what i what i would recommend in terms of trying is take some time to think about what you're really good at what your strengths are what is it that really separates you or gives you the x factor within the position that you're currently in or, and, and across the different aspects of your lives as well as a as a trainee as a as an emerging professional you know, as a as a sibling, as a, um, you know, a partner, whatever it might be, think about what those strengths are, and then think about really how you create opportunities to utilise those strengths on a daily basis. I think for me, this is a real more positive way of engaging in uh, performance enhancement, but also a great way to kind of really live your lives. Yes, we do have to improve the things that aren't great. But we also have to celebrate those things that we're really good at. And I don't necessarily think we're brilliant at doing that. And so I'd really like people to lead a step change in this, to, to focus on those, those strengths and really lead and drive, drive their practice and, and drive their lives, our, our wider lives, I suppose, through, uh, through that strengths-based approach. So that would, that would be my advice. Try and focus less on those things that we're not great at and focus on those things that we are really good at and create opportunities to utilise those things great sentiments and a, a great tip professor brendan cropley thank you so much for your time for your insight and we will have you back and we will be listening to you play that guitar singing at the top of your lungs at some stage yeah. well thank you for today you might not be thanking me after the singing but yeah, no, I've, I've really appreciated the opportunity to uh, to to chat with you about something that i'm quite passionate about so yeah thank you for the for giving me this forum it's our pleasure. And to all of you out there, stay well, stay safe, um, and we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Professor Brendan Cropley from the University of South Wales. Brendan's book recommendation was This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kay. And Brendan will be back with a musical item as soon as we can persuade him to come back on. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.